everyone. My name's Mary Tivy and welcome back to the Animal Health Surveillance Podcast. So today we're going to be having a bit of a different episode again. So we have three small animal vets joining us today. Um, so carry on listening to hear us having a conversation about disease surveillance and how that impacts them in their day-to-day lives in small animal practice. So, um, yeah, without further ado, I am going to let um, the our three guests introduce themselves um, and then we'll get on with the conversation. I'm Bethany. I'm a small animal vet and I work in a hospital, but I do some branch work. Yeah. I'm Henrietta. I'm a small animal vet working in small animal only practice. Um, it's a clinic. So in my current role, I don't have any out of hours. And I'm Lawrence. I'm another small animal vet. Um, I work in a medium-sized hospital. Um, I mainly do small animal medicine work. Um, Cool. All right. Well, I guess the first thing then is just like talking about um, sort of experiences with disease surveillance. So I guess the first thing would be kind of thinking about, you know, going the transition from, you know, going from uni out into practice and, you know, what we learned at university as vets or what we were taught and, you know, the, you know how kind of you had to adjust when you went out into practice with kind of how your knowledge developed or you know did you find that actually the things you learned at university prepared you well or didn't prepare you well so I don't know if anyone's got any thoughts about that. So I'd say that I was prepared well for knowing what would happen with farm animals but probably less well for what would happen with small animals um, and less how it would like mirror across to general practice because when you like when somebody books in a chicken that's sneezing you don't immediately go bird flu lock the practice down um so kind of like how how you trans yeah how you transfer from there might be a notifiable disease to now nobody can come into the practice even if they don't have chickens yeah, yeah. although luckily I've never had to deal with that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so if when you've had like a, a situation like that or the first situation you had of that I mean what who did you go to as kind of source of advice was it boss APHA boss but luckily it was after I'd like I waited till I'd seen the chicken which in retrospect could have not worked in my favor I waited till I saw it and it was it was actually egg-bound peritonitis it just had sepsis from that it wasn't anything else so I didn't have to worry but it was booked in as one where I was thinking ah I'm going to have to shut the practice down if that's bad um, but I just spoke to my boss and he was like, see it first and then go from there. Yeah. 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 That's interesting, actually. I'd, I hadn't thought about that as well as you're right. You know, I've been in equine. It was a bit different. But going in uni, it was basically farm animals, wasn't it, really, in terms of surveillance? Yeah. I think the um, the picture I got of disease surveillance coming out of university, that it was basically notifiable diseases plus a few other things yeah in in farm animals foot and mouth tb those sorts of things but all the other aspects of it which now are coming more to the fore i think as you go as you become a more experienced vet and over time actually in generally in the veterinary field i don't think you were caught taught very much about that at all yeah yeah especially if you feel like you're seeing a lot of cases in a similar area like with what Lawrence was saying as you get more experience you kind of see the caseload and you go ah I've had several cases with this unusual clinical presentation 
and you just kind of go hmm, they could be connected but you don't really have a I, I've not been taught a way where I go ah this is how I approach this to see if it's happening nationwide or something um I'd say a prime example of the lack of small animal surveillance recently has been brought to the forefront for example with outbreaks of just things like kennel cough where I've heard on the grapevine through colleagues in the local area that everyone's seen a lot of it um and that we've seen more of it as well but it's very much left to word of mouth and another example would be the panleukopenia outbreak in cats that's been traced back to most likely one particular factory making cat food where actually it was it took an awful lot of cases to arise and be referred for it actually to be detected at all because it was the Royal Veterinary College putting together all of those referrals that realised they were having an outbreak of anything in the first place. Um, individual practices were seeing outbreaks within families, but not necessarily many cases in their own practice in sort of se- with separate families and not joining the dots. But equally, those conditions they're reportable to trading standards if you or not kennel cough but their food product problem was reportable to trading standards if you've got a problem with pet food that's for sale but given it wasn't found to be something that would affect people or really the economy as such the network for surveillance and notifiable disease and all of that kind of thing is so poor compared to in large animals I mean the best that we've got really are post-consultation questionnaires that every I don't even know how many consults it is maybe every five or ten consults it pops up asking you what that one was about and that's actually one of the most complicated ways that we've got in small animal of detecting anything and surveying what's going on where Um, and it's all very much retrospective and very little of it is actually analyzed in the moment so it's hard to um, hard to pick up on things before they become a really major problem whereas I would agree finishing vet school I felt very well prepared to diagnose a case of anthrax and report it to someone but not really I mean the surveillance techniques that we have for small animals in general practice are they're, they're just not there unless it's a notifiable but you know how often do you see those in small animals or or even how often do you suspect them and it's so uncommon we were getting a few kennel cough outbreaks just with what you said and we were getting quite a few kennel cough cases in ones that had been vaccinated for it so for those ones we contacted the companies but unless the owner agreed to do a swab of the nose at the time it was kind of useless because we had no idea of knowing what strain it was so then like even though the vaccine companies kindly said that they would fund it the owners would be like no it's best like it's, it's going to improve on its own isn't it so there's no point and so it's quite difficult convincing owners even if they don't have to pay for it um, to do like the further tests to see because we were wondering if there was a strain of kennel cough that wasn't that was becoming more common that wasn't in the vaccine and um, yeah mm-hmm. yeah interesting so because you meant obviously you know talking about things like kennel cough and like panpsychopenia and stuff like that you know where are you guys getting the information about that I mean I know that obviously there's been a lot hasn't there about you know that's going out via social media and all of that kind of thing now particularly about the cat food issue and stuff but you know is there anywhere that you kind of get the information about that kind of thing from what's happening <laughs> I think as you said the answer just then it, you, the RVC will tweet it and you'll see it on Twitter or it'll get retweeted by the RCVS or whoever will be, yeah. you'll see so, it or you'll have a friend of a friend who works at a referral practice and they post it on Facebook or whatever that that's generally where I think most of this information gets mm-hmm. to small animal vets uh, yes I know there are some systems in place but I don't think they're 
ingrained enough into the maybe the psyche of the small animal vet to be that you go and look at them on a regular basis searching for what you should be looking for I get most of these things via whatsapp but that's because I have a group from of people from my internship where yes they say oh we've seen an awful lot of kennel cough at our referral center recently that's progressed on to pneumonia are you seeing more kennel cough and we go oh yes yes so we are and then equally with the pancytopenia yeah one of my friends is a resident at the Royal Vet College so I heard about it a couple, four or five days before it hit the mainstream stuff when it was, oh, my God, what's going on? We, the RVC, need to release a press release. We're getting on it. And then it's disseminated for other widespread media at that point. But mm. at that point, they had absolutely no idea what was causing it. Yeah. It was just this mystery problem that even isolating the food as a cause took a, took a while after that. So, um, yeah, it's all it's word of mouth and chance, basically. I know I got a lot of emails in the last 18 months about the bird flu outbreak that happened at the same time as the COVID pandemic. Um, but I will say, I almost think I got too many emails because I stopped reading them. So um, there were, it was, so I do get a source of information, I suppose, that way with like via Improve International and the APHA. I do get some emails, but the majority of them have been about bird flu. So I haven't really picked up on any of the small animal stuff that's not to do with birds. Yeah, I became an AV a couple of um, months ago and all of the emails so far, bar one, I think, the you get an email several times a week and most of them about changes to bovine TB testing or bird flu or stuff yeah, like that. That's true. It's not particularly tailored, is it, to what you know what you are specifically an OB for? You know, no. Yeah. Obviously, it is important for us all to know, especially, I suppose, with small animal vets and you know, if you are seeing things like chickens, then I guess the bird flu stuff is useful, but it's good to advise your clients on, but usually I don't know about you guys. I would say that the the way you find out the quickest way to find out is if somebody or one of your colleagues has an interest in that area and they'll tell you, and then it prompts you to go and investigate it or read up on it more. Um, That's been the way I've found out about a lot of them. Yeah, no, that's interesting, actually. I'd not thought about that with, with OVs, but yeah, you're right. It's Although, obviously, it is interesting to get all those updates. Having tailored updates could be... It uh, becomes quite jargony, and a lot of it is based on, like, it's an update to this number, 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 slash number, which makes it actually far less engaging as well as, than if they just gave you a headline. Yeah. Um, you know, if they free, if they emailed you sort of like the RCVS email every week where it's all broken down into nice chunks with a nice headline it would be a lot more easy and accessible but so much of the speak because it's coming from government departments so much of it is jargon and as much as yes if we put our minds to it we can understand it public health lectures and exams for a long time ago I can't at the time you would have said oh yes WATOC that's this EC regulation I can remember that whereas yeah five years out my brain is now full of dose regimes and vaccine protocols and dental chart numbering and that kind of thing instead of actually all of that side of things so de-jargonifying it might actually engage the veterinary community a little bit more because unless you are working in public health exclusively or lecturing it or whatever or recently have been examined on it it's just not something that's retainable in your brain Um, and the moment you lose people's understanding you'll lose their interest and their willingness to actually you know if it doesn't look like a palatable way of learning something what those emails from APHA I'm always like right is there anything here about official controls of companion animals because that's the only thing that actually is going to affect my day job so 
And I mean, ultimately, the UK, what is it, a 50% rise in the number of dogs in the last 20 months? It's it's an absolute jungle out there at the moment. And surveillance, yes, it's important. But at the moment, I don't have a lot of time to spare to just click on things out of interest in my emails if it's not directly and important, directly relevant and important. Yeah. Even free CPD, I've got a list as long as my arm as, of webinars I want to watch, but finding time to do it and also having time to switch off so you don't burn out is impossible. Yeah, yeah that's interesting, actually. So I don't know, have you guys been aware or are you guys aware that they're now setting up a companion animal species expert group at the APHA? So they have their pig species expert, sheep, you know, small ruminant, cattle, poultry, and they're, they're a group that are specifically set up to do surveillance in those species groups. So then now they've just hired a head for a companion animal. So I assume that will be small animals plus equine um, uh, to set up a, a companion animal species expert group. So the assumption being that they will function in the same way as the others and produce like quarterly reports and things, but focused on the companion animal. Don't know if you guys have been aware of that. That would help. Yeah. Do you think it'll be useful? I mean, the only interaction I've had regarding small animals with the APHA, other than generating animal health certificates, etc., um, is a case where it was diagnosed with a specific species of salmonella in its feces as a puppy. And I received a questionnaire asking where the puppy had come from, what were its clinical signs, what was the risk deemed to be to this, that and the other. That was actually the only surveillance form I've ever had from the APHA for a small animal. Whereas at least with farm animal surveillance, farmers farmers pretty much all know what is notifiable, what is reportable, what they have to do, what they have to start reporting themselves. And I think they are aware of the more legal side of pet of not pet ownership, but of um agricultural animal ownership than and I think with horses as well, people are quite on it with a lot of things because swab testing and stuff is so common before transport or whatever. I think people see that as more of a reasonable thing um but yeah 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 I think we've had we had a kitten that got TB yeah so but that was that's going back a few years and I'm fairly I'm fairly sure we had to report that one because it was a, like a cohort of pedigrees that had raw food when they were kittens and it was a known problem at the time mm. I've had I suppose the only ones I had are confirmed uh rabbit viral hemorrhagic diarrhea strain too um that one but we it sent we sent it for post-mortem so it was more like the lab but then responsible for it I didn't have to other than putting stuff out in the local area to be like we've had two deaths because there were two rabbits in the same household and we did a post-mortem on one of them um, and they weren't vaccinated so other than doing like a vaccine drive for the rabbits in the area didn't we didn't have to do very much more than that um, one thing I will say though with the increase in pet travel I'm aware it's decreased with COVID but the increase in pet travel with the AHCs they would be really good if they could do more surveillance on like leash mania cases coming in and all of that because as soon as global warming makes the sand fly come here we we have a lot of cases of leash mania now and it, it there's no real way of keeping track of them and people seem to think one negative test before they comes in means they'll never have a problem and like I suppose it goes for more than just leash mania but that's the one I think I see the most of the exotic diseases coming in um and yeah, the other thing I guess I wanted to ask you guys, I mean, we've talked, we've mentioned about, um, you know, some of the stuff like, you know, obviously all the issues with the cat food and everything and and some of the information that's coming from the RVC, which I assume is the Vet Compass project, because that's 
their kind of surveillance group that then sent yeah that was Travsnet. yeah yeah I was gonna that's what I wanted to ask about like you know experience was with other things like you know so surveillance systems that have got nothing to do with the APHA, so SAVSnet, Vet Compass, that kind of thing. I'm not 100% sure which one's which and how they work, but I think certain computer systems have ways where Vet Compass can access your records and will pick out diagnoses and things from the software. Um, the difference with SAVSnet, I believe, unless they do the same as well, is that after consultations, it pops up and says, oh, what was the S animal's problem? Um, my experience of it is that there's almost never a good time for it to pop up is the slight issue so if you really don't have time particularly I mean it it does I hate to admit it but it makes me bias my data because if it's a respiratory or gastrointestinal problem I don't want to answer 20 questions afterwards it can take a minute or two and some days 10 minutes is all I get for lunch and so if all I'm reporting are lumps, bumps, vaccinations and post-op checks because I've got time to because they're the shorter appointments. So I am a little bit worried. Yeah, it's interesting to hear. I mean, it's interesting to, to understand how it fits into your day. I mean, do you either of your practices use? No. No? OK. My first one, I think, used Vet Compass because we had to write diagnoses in the box. Nowhere, nowhere I've worked used any of them. So they were, I Googled them when you mentioned them because I, I didn't know what they were um no, it's, so. yeah it's interesting it's just interesting to hear whether I, I think a lot of people have had experience if their crack direct experience if their practice has been part of or they do know them from the information they put out so I think yeah. particularly so again I don't know if all the information is necessarily tagged as coming from those so for, for example just because obviously RBC you know, I know a bit better, but I know that a lot of the the research that's coming out of the RBC, a lot of it is, you know, come it has got some association with Vet Compass one way or the other. My first job was a private practice, but enormous group of private practices. Um, in fact, probably the largest group of private practices in the UK, and they were. I think they, I think it was Vet Compass they used. I wasn't familiar with the name then, but I was told that there was software that was that was why it was important to write diagnoses and. I'm not sure if it's all CVS sites, but CVS certainly use it now. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, for SavSnet, for SavSnet rather than that yeah. So, is there anything, you know, that you got that would be useful in terms of surveillance? No, no matter where that's coming from, so be it coming from the APHA or coming from you know one of these other systems, is there anything, so any output that would be useful to you guys? Um, you know, it, or, or, or a method of, of, of information, you know, for example, you say about like, you know, you hear about a lot of these things from social media, which obviously is great because, you know, it's good that we're all connected through social media and you're finding out about things through social media. But is there any other way that, you know, you could get information that would actually be useful that you don't get it already? I think my most useful source of information that these things come out is whichever centre is dealing with it the most. So like when the pancytopenia stuff came out, I knew that the RVC was where I should go to read my like most up-to-date information because they were the one collating it all um if I'm looking for stuff on Alabama rot then I would usually like I know I know where to go for the information for that and if I'm dealing with things on like vaccine problems I'd go to the vaccine company so I think probably and I might just be because I've not had much to do with a lot of their surveillance that I don't think I usually would go to the AP APHA as my first port of call for a lot of my problems I probably go to the referral centers which I suppose like I said when we had the we had a lot of dogs with swellings 
we rang all the local referral centres and said, have you been getting dogs referred with this problem? And we sent out a questionnaire to all the owners that had it to try and be like, is there a pattern? Is there something there? There wasn't, as it turns out. But like, I, I don't think anybody thought about reporting it. Maybe we should have. No, that's yeah. It's in, it's just interesting to hear about you know that kind of thing. I think it would be really useful if they printed their updates on mugs and biscuits and then sent them to vet practices. <laughs> <laughs> Some food would always be very handy. Yeah, that, well, that might get the message across quite effectively. Actually. The, the tea time top up, the surveillance tea time top up. If they send us tea and biscuits every afternoon, would be good. No, the the thing that I think would be good if they've got a new like person coming out to be yeah. companion animal expert is if they did do like a monthly update on what you should know, depending on the species you work with. Like this is what we've heard, whether it be from referral centres or from overseas or there's been a problem with this. It's like this is relevant to dog cats. I think that's the useful thing there would be if you said that you have to go and ask all these different places. If you notice one certain thing, you go, oh, I'm going to go and ask this person after a different thing. I'm going to go ask this person about it. If all that information is centralised and you know there is one hub of information that you can go to if you are thinking, oh, I've seen a few of these cases of this. I know if I go, this one centralised hub, no matter what it is, they should mm-hmm. have all the information. If they're, if it's the APHA, if it's anywhere else, if they are some somewhere managed to pull all this information in from all these different places and have that centralized hub of information where you know i can go there and the second thing as we said if they can put it out in a form which is accessible and understandable not with all the jargon of these are specific laws about it or whatever if it's yeah easy to find you don't have to trawl through websites and websites and find it it's oh this is the website you type it in click, 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 this is where I know I'm going to find all the surveillance data about dogs or the surveillance data about cats out there for the last quarter, whatever. Yes, if we've got a a quarterly update, things like that, that potentially would be quite useful. Most of these things move really fast. So actually, panzytopenia is hopefully a thing of the past yeah um because they've recalled the food, but that only started less than three months ago and the kennel cough outbreaks tend to be semi-seasonal and most of the things this is the problem is that with 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 there's always a balance with monitor with surveying anything of being overly relaxed and working like releasing information retrospectively versus being overly cautious and saying oh we're having an outbreak of this that and the other when there's been four cats in two households with it and saying everyone needs to look out for it and actually you don't know if it's a thing until it's become a thing is the problem so it's not like oh we've got one foot and mouth disease case well that's it we're locking down that's completely different because it's spread on the wind and it's highly contagious but at the moment we don't have problems such as that in dogs and cats significantly so if that's the christmas before covid hit they did it was it I can't remember if it was like my vet times or companion animal or whatever but the headline was that lots of the dog and cat diaries of that season had been caused by a coronavirus and then they were like sweep that under the rug sweep it under the rug there's nothing happening yeah but even even with those ones there should be with mass surveying it won't necessarily change how you treat the case so we don't have to run fecal analyses on anything with vomiting and diarrhea but if 
every case of hemorrhagic gastroenteritis had a sample taken to send somewhere or even non-hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, if every dog that came with some diarrhea, significant amounts of diarrhea, especially if there's more of an outbreak going on, if samples were taken from all of them and sent somewhere, they would be able to get answers so much faster. And then we could work out whether or not we need to develop a vaccine for enteric coronaviruses in dogs, or, you know, even if, I think I just can't help but think if you found, if you could give some laboratory a sample of hate of hge feces from every single dog that you see with hge surely they can work out what's causing it in the majority of cases so we can actually improve the treatment and the outcome for some of these seriously debilitated cases that's i suppose isn't it is that unless you had somebody subsidizing the research because that was the advantage for the rabbit uh, viral hemorrhagic diarrhea was postmortem was free because it was for research. The other way they get postmortems or diagnostic tests for free is if they believe a drugs company is at fault and then a drugs company will pay for the investigation to prove it wasn't their fault. But other than that, unless you can convince the owner it's in their interest to pay for that investigation, that's why I, I would agree with what you said there, Hen. Unless you can convince them it's going to change the treatment and the management, they probably won't pay. So then you can't find out what it is, so then you can't. Then you can't I find it quite easy to sell isn't the word I find it quite easy to I always give a list of treatment and investigation options to every client that comes to me with a problem and yeah it's all about engagement of vets and mm. owners <laughs> oh brilliant well thank you so much um guys for coming on to talk to us today um it's been really interesting um to to talk to you all about this so thanks so much again to Lawrence, Henrietta and Bethany for coming onto the podcast today and for a really fascinating discussion about uh, surveillance and how it impacts you in your day to day lives as small animal vets. Um, and thank you for listening today. If you found it interesting, then um, keep an eye on the series because I plan to repeat these kind of question and answer sessions with some uh, vets in other uh, areas of practice. So farm animal or equine as well. So if you found this interesting, then keep an eye out for those. Um, so if you like the series, um, please do mention it to your friends and your colleagues. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at the AHS podcast. Um, and again, if you've got any questions, any suggestions or any topics you think would be interesting, then um, please do leave any comments um, on Twitter or on the website. Um, thanks so much for tuning in today. And hopefully we will see you again for the next episode next time.